Good morning, everybody. Good to have your Bible open or switched on. And uh, we're in Luke chapter 4, as you've just had read to you just now. For those who are visiting us, we're going through Luke and looking at what Luke had to say. And uh, here's this man, a doctor, Luke, writing. Many scholars think that he was writing a document which would form a briefing paper for the judge at Paul's trial. And he's writing down what we know and what we believe, which he says he does by careful research. And now we've reached chapter 4. This story of the temptations of Jesus. Last week, if you were here last week, Tim Cracknell very helpfully led us in verses 23 to 37 of chapter 3, the last part of chapter 3, which we call the genealogy of Jesus. One person had this son or daughter, and so on and so on and so on, right the way back. And he led us through that time together, and it was a very helpful time. But in a sense, that is a parenthesis. That goes in brackets in what um, Luke is writing. And chapter 4, verse 1 that we reach today, comes really straight after chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. It comes straight after the fact that Jesus was baptized, and uh, we read, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon Jesus. And then chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. If you were to look in Mark's Gospel, where he records this incident, he says that Jesus was baptized, the voice came from heaven, and immediately he was led into the wilderness. And he went there, as we have read today. So it's a very important thing, what's happening now. Following this moment of affirmation, when God speaks from heaven about his son, and says, this is my son, with whom I'm well pleased, whom I love, as soon as he has says that, he's led, into the spirit, uh, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. From the high moment, he immediately faces this hard time. From this declaration of delight, he then goes to be tempted in the wilderness and to endure these difficulties that he had there. One is a moment of triumph and the next is a moment of trouble. Now, it's important to note that because so often, following great blessing, there is great pressure. It's helpful for us to note that because we need to be prepared for pressures that come as Christian people. It's, it's significant that it was immediately following Jesus' baptism. If you've been baptized as a believer, you will know that many, many people, as soon as they're baptized, it seems that the devil wants to have a go at new people uh, being baptized. Some of you perhaps are going to be baptized. We're having a baptismal service in January, all being well, and some are being prepared for that time of baptism. Well, we need to warn them that it's likely that they will be under pressure once they're baptized. In many parts of the world, 
you can say you're a Christian and nothing too much will happen to you. But as soon as you're baptized, persecution arises. Well, with Jesus, he was baptized and then immediately the pressures and so on that came because of it. Now, where did they come from? Well, in all three of these temptations, in verse 3, verse 5, and verse 9, each place it tells us it was the devil who tempted Jesus. Matthew's Gospel says it was the tempter. Now, we may assume that that was it. It was just that the devil got to him. But actually, the precipitating cause of Jesus' temptation was that he was led by the Spirit. Now, that's important and helpful for us to notice because I think it's important because some people think that there is a sort of um, teaching around that says that if you're living by the Spirit, if you're walking hand in hand with the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, as Paul puts it in Galatians, then you'll be okay. Everything will be fine. You'll have a good time. And you'll enjoy life, etc. But here there is this divergence between being led by the Spirit and immediately he was being tempted and put under pressure. And that's how the Bible sees it. So it's important for us to note that the blessings we enjoy are no guarantee of walking by the Spirit, but neither are the pressures we, in, we, we face an indication that we're not walking by the Spirit. The Spirit led him and immediately he was being tempted by the devil. Health and wealth, for example, are no indication that you're walking in the Spirit. And neither are they a, a temptations an indication that you're not. not. I mean, you, you, we sometimes think back to the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. For 40 years they wandered in the wilderness because they refused to trust God and go into the promised land. They were there at Kadesh Barnea. The spies went into the land, came back and said, yes, we can do it, said two of them. Ten of them said, no, we can't do it. The enemy is so strong. And so the children of Israel listened to the ten and wandered back into the wilderness for 40 years. And we get the impression sometimes that what happened was God says, all right, if you won't follow me, won't go into the promised land, you can go off into the wilderness. When you've finished your wandering, come back here and we'll start again and we'll take you into the promised land. But actually it doesn't say that. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is speaking to the people. He says, listen, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years. So even there, in the constant pressures that they faced in wandering in the wilderness, it was led by the Spirit. God was leading them. Pillar of fire by night, pillar of cloud by day. And why did he do that? Well, Moses says, he did it to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you'd keep his commands. He caused you to hunger so that you'd learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So had God abandoned them or deserted them during those 40 years? Not at all. He led them in those times in the wilderness. Far from it being the case that the time of pressure meant God had left them, it's more likely that God is at work even in the pressures that we face day by day. In the case of the children of Israel, there were things they needed to know. They needed to learn that man should not live by bread alone. In the case of Jesus, Jesus' case, he was tempted as a glorious demonstration of his power 
and his holiness as he overcame the devil in those temptations. You might look at like, put it like this. God was showing Jesus off in Luke 4, first few verses. Those he was showing him off to the devil, showing him off to the world. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Chapter 3, verse 22. Chapter 4, now watch and see what it means to please God and how you can put that into practice. Have you ever bought a new car? Some of you may have bought a new car and you go down to the showroom and the salesman shows you around the cars and you get the brochures about it and so on and you go out and then eventually he says, take the car out for a spin. Take it for a, r a drive round. You've got... Um, well, sometimes they say, bring it back in a couple of hours. Sometimes they say, you can have it for a weekend even. And they take it. Now, why does he do that? To show it off, that's all. To show it off. To let you see what the car can do. That's why it's called a demonstrator. To demonstrate what the car is like. Its comfort, its speed, its quietness, its power, its spaciousness. You begin to know what all those different buttons are for. That you never use afterwards. I mean, in my car, I can push a button and the car parks itself. But I've never used it except to show off to others. But, you know, we have these things. But you, you can do all those when you're in a, demonstra a, a demonstrator. So when you say, why does God allow this pressure? Why does God allow us to be tempted? Why does God allow this problem to arise in my life? So often it's because he wants to show off that the devil, even in those situations, can be defeated. He's defeated in principle, but we need to defeat him in practice. Sometimes said, it's the set of the sail, not the strength of the gale, that determines the way that you go. It's the set of the sail, not the strength of the gale, that determines the way that you go. And it's how we react to the pressures that's the, pro that's the issue. It's not the fact of the pressure. It's how we react to it that's the, that's the issue. So what are the pressures, the temptations that Jesus faced? Interesting set of temptations, I think. And they actually correlate with what John says in 1 John chapter 2. Paul says in Corinthians chapter 2, he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11, he says, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. Or as the NIV puts it, we're not unaware of his schemes. We know how he acts. I mean, Gloucester on the 20th of December is playing Bath at rugby. Some of you know that. You know it better than I do. Gloucester are playing rugby. On the, and they're great rivals. Gloucester and, and um, Bath are great ri rivals. But um, they've sold the tickets out, by the way. Can't get any now, I'm told. But what if you had a spy, and you were playing, for, you, you were on Gloucester side, you had a spy in Bath's changing rooms, their training rooms, so that you can listen to the strategies and the schemes they were developing to overcome Gloucester. What a huge advantage. Well, John says, and so does Paul, that we're not ignorant of his devices. And therefore it's important for us to see what his devices, his schemes are, so that we are prepared. Uh, in fact, Satan only has three strategies, as we shall see. 
and we need to know what they are. Learn them so that we will have a huge advantage. I mean, Gloucester has faced Bath in rugby 392 times. 210 times they've won. But there's always the 170 times when they haven't won, or 17 times when they've drawn. But if Gloucester could only find out Bath's strategies, what a huge advantage. Well, we have Satan's strategy in how he tempts us. And here they are. According to John, Satan's three strategies are this. 1 John 2.15, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Or as the NIV, New International Version, puts it, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. This is how John puts it. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, that's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, that's the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And he goes on to explain that the devil is the ruler of this world. Incidentally, by the word world, he doesn't mean this this planet. He means the cosmos, the order of things in this world. Now when it comes to temptation and sin we know it's real but we love to wrap sin up in words that sort of soften it all, don't we? Sometimes in words that we just don't even bother to understand. I mean I can remember you know the prayer book language about lasciviousness and superfluity of naughtiness and all manner of evil concupiscence. Now, now, what does that mean? Well, we don't even bother to try and work it out. Lasciviousness and superfluity of northness, all manner of evil concupiscence and so on. It's just saying, actually, that we are lustful people. That's all it's saying. We are lustful people. But we like to cover up sin, not call sin what it is. We love to cover it up with other words because we don't feel so offended by it. When Paul speaks about the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, Let me read it to you in the old King James Version. It says this, Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, there's that word again, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I also have told you in the past, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now why did I read it in the authorised version? Because in the middle of it there's those two words, just as an example, variance and emulations. We don't use those words today. What does he mean by variance and emulations? Variance simply means trying to keep up with the next door neighbour. Keeping up with the Joneses. And emulations. Jealousies of keeping up with each other. Trying to emulate other people. Those are the sort of things. We need to face what sin actually is, not cover it up with nice little words, etc. Of course, the fashion today is to say, well, no, no, it's not really sin. I mean, they're natural instincts that we have, or, or there are rights to do this or that or the other. There are natural appetites, or... 
It's our natural response to circumstances, even our comforts and our pleasures. But let's be clear, says John, Satan has just these three strategies. The flesh, the mind, the ego. And he plays these three strategies again and again and again. Let's take the first temptation there was in the Bible when Satan said to Eve, take the forbidden fruit. Go on, take it. And this is where he puts it in Genesis 3 verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit that it was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh. I could do with that. And pleasant to the eyes. That's the mind playing tricks. Isn't it lovely? And then, and desirable for making one wise. That's the pride of life. I want to be wise. She took some. So here come these three temptations to Jesus. First one was, of course, why don't you make these stones into bread? Jesus had been fasting for 40 days, and Satan came and said, just make those stones into bread. Wouldn't you like some nice bread? I mean, aren't you hungry? Didn't your heavenly Father make hunger as a right uh, uh, thing, and therefore satisfying it is a right and a proper thing? Surely. You have a right to satisfy your appetite. Go on, make those stones into bread. He doesn't want, want you to be frustrated, does he? So today, the sin, same sin comes again and again. Same temptation. Don't you deserve a moment of satisfaction? Don't you think you should have what everybody else has and enjoy yourself for a bit? The fact is, you see, there is pleasure in sin, for a while, says the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 11, there is, there is a, a pleasure in sin for a while, but only for a short while. You give in to the temptation, and yes, you will have pleasure for a while, but you'll have pain for the rest of your life, in some cases eternally. Of course, the devil likes to tempt us and make it appear fine, so that we say, yes, I'll, I'll take it, and give us pleasure for a while, but we'll be pain, it'll be pain for the rest of our lives. All of us could tell stories today about how we have reached out and taken the forbidden fruit, because it's something that we want to satisfy our natural longings. Yes, there is forgiveness, thank God that there is when we sin, but even scars remain and sometimes scars carried for the rest of life. So what did Jesus do in that circumstance when Satan said, come on, make these stones into bread. You can do it. You're hungry. Natural thing. Enjoy it. So what did Jesus do? Well, he obviously did something very simple outwardly. He quoted scripture. Quoted scripture. Did it with all three temptations. He spoke the word, and he submitted to the word. Uh, the, you see, the, the Bible describes the word of God the Bible, as the sword of the Spirit by which we overcome sin. Deuteronomy 8 says, I will not focus on purely material, and we are not to just think that we can live life with the things that are around us, but we need to learn that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. 
But Jesus here not only spoke the word, he submitted to the word. He says, that's what it says, and therefore, that's what I'll do. It's not just a matter of saying words, but being willing to take the consequences of saying that. In that case, that is what I will do. It is written, therefore, I will not do that, is what Jesus is saying. Knowing scripture is one thing, submitting to it is another. Then there's the second temptation, the lust of the eyes. Verse 5, Satan took him up to high mountains to see all these kingdoms. I'm the God of this world. I have authority over these things. If you'll only bow down to me, I'll give you everything you want. Don't you want people to follow you? Don't you want big crowds when you stand up and speak? Don't you want people turning to you? and uh, lifting you high and lauding you and praising you. Don't you want that? Well, I can give you that if only you'll bow down to me, is what he's saying. Look, it can all be yours. In other words, he was saying, look, I'll show you a shortcut to blessing. All you've got to do is to bow down to me. You don't have to go through the cross and all the suffering of the cross. Just submit to me and you can have it all. When it says in Genesis 3 verse 6 that we've already touched on that when Eve saw the fruit that it was good for food it was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make you wise what does that actually mean? Simply this that before ever she stretched out her hand and took that fruit she'd thought about it a hundred times. That's what it means. When she'd been, they were put in the garden to tend the garden, and when she'd been tending the plants or doing the work in the garden, whatever it meant in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, as she went past that tree, her mind would say, look at that fruit, doesn't it look great? I wonder what it tastes like. I wonder what it's like. And her mind went out to take the forbidden fruit a thousand times before she ever stretched out her hand to actually take it. Look at it. You could do with some of that. And yes, I'd like some of that. Have you ever thought about the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer, you would expect it to say in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into sin. But that's not what it says. What it says, Jesus says, when you pray, pray, lead us not into temptation. Why? Because once temptation gets hold of you, the consequences, the action follow. And that's what he was saying. The way to avoid sin, in other words, is to avoid temptation. It's no good if you're a kleptomaniac and can't help taking, pinching things all the time. It's no good going down and wandering around the supermarkets and looking at all the things you'd like to pinch and saying, Lord, please can make me strong so I don't take them. You avoid going to the supermarket if that's your problem. So avoid temptation. So the prayer is, lead us not into temptation. Because once you have been tempted, then it's halfway to giving in. So Satan said, come on Jesus, just, just all you've got to do is bow to me. Have you noticed that the devil always has a hang-up about worship? It's how he started when he was known as Lucifer in Isaiah, when he wanted what God had, the authority and the respect and the worship of God and led a rebellion, right from the very beginning. But here Jesus again uses scripture and says to him, no, this is what the scripture says. 
Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. I will only worship my Father and worship him exclusively. Then there's the third temptation. The pride of life, verse 9. Jesus was taken to the pinnacle of the temple and uh, Satan said to him, look, here we are. Milling people down below, the crowds that are coming and going in the temple. This is the sort of market area of, of the city and so on. All the people there. Why don't you jump off? Because the scripture does say, doesn't it, that he will give his angels command concerning you to guard you carefully so that you, that you will not strike your foot against the stone. So the angels will rescue you. But what a demonstration that would be of your might and power. Why don't you do it, Jesus? Why don't you take this short cut to getting people to bow down before you? The angels will pick you up before you crash at the bottom. And then people will want to come and see you. Then people will want to hear you. Show off. Let the people know. By the way, have you noticed where that temptation took place? It was at the pinnacle of the temple. The highest point in the holiest place was where that temptation came. I don't know if, you're, if I'm the only one, but I doubt it very much. Have you noticed that um, you can have real temptation even in church? You might think that when you come to church, well, that's a way to avoid temptation, and Satan will say, okay, off you go to church, and I'll be here when you come back. No, he doesn't do that. It's sometimes within the context of God's people and God's work that temptation comes. Often it's the highest place of that time of worship when pride and carnality and cynicism and apathy creep in. By the way, that's a real temptation, and I speak to myself, a real temptation, especially to those who are in leadership positions in the church. Don't you want to be seen as successful? Don't you want to be admired? Don't you want to be wanted? Do you think the devil says on Sunday, it's okay, I won't be touching you while you go to church? Not at all. Satan and his evil forces are often most active at the highest point in the holiest place, even here at Abbey Church. But again, Jesus quoted scripture. By the way, Satan quoted scripture, he can do that, but the way in which he quoted it was taken by Jesus, and Jesus says, no, look, let me put it in context. Let me give you the whole teaching of God. Let me give you the... the, the, the because so often, cults, for example, will take a scripture and quote scripture to you, but, it's, but they've taken that scripture and they've twisted that particular scripture instead of taking the whole teaching of the word of God. And the Bible is always the best interpreter of the Bible. Any and every cult quotes scripture, as Satan did here. But it's important that we need to get to know the whole teaching of scripture. I was leading a conference of about 600 church leaders in Russia some years back. And on mo one morning at the breakfast time, some, a group of a delegation of about eight or ten of them came up to me and said, we have a question for you. And I said, yeah, what is it? They said, well, we were up half the night. We went to bed about three o'clock in the morning because we were having a debate. And uh, we were arguing backwards and forwards about, uh, about a particular issue. And uh, we had different viewpoints. And we want to know what your opinion is. And I said, what was the issue? And the issue was, 
Can a single person be a church leader? Or do they have to be married? And I thought, where does this come from? And they'd be up half the night because they read in the scripture that a church leader must be a, a husband of but, uh, the wife of but one wife. Husband of but one wife, it says in the authorized version. And they said, does that mean they've got to be married? Well, not at all. I, mean, I said, well, when you take the whole scripture and look at the Apostle Paul and so on, who says, I'd much rather you were single like I am, and uh, so on, then you begin to get a much bigger picture. He's, what he's saying is that you shouldn't have lots and lots of wives. Oh, is that it? They went back to told the others, oh, that's the answer. Said, okay. But you see, we can take a little thought and twist it, spend half the night agonizing over it and so on. Hence the importance, by the way, of plugging away at teaching the Word of God when we come on Sundays and at other times to get the, to know the, the full picture of the Word of God. That's why Paul spoke in, in the Acts of the Apostles where he talked about, I've taught them the whole counsel of God. It's not just knowing a lot about a little thing. It's the whole counsel, the balanced teaching of the Word of God that we <coughs> need. One final thought. Jesus is just starting his ministry now. He hasn't actually started his healing and teaching and preaching ministry and so on. He's just setting out. He's been baptized and was now in being tempted and then his uh, ministry begins. Let me ask you, what is your ministry? It could be anything. If you're a believer, it could be music or teaching or missionary work or caring for others or um, serving others. It could be an administration. It could be technical. It could be a thousand and one different areas of your ministry. These three levels of temptation are ones that you're likely to face when you set out. And they're likely to be faced by all of us. The temptation to materialism. Take that bread, those stones, and make them into bread. What do I get out of it? The temptation to pragmatism. Worship me. I mean, let's take a shortcut to get everybody to enjoy us and coming here. The temptation to sensationalism. Everybody will love it. Come and see the power of God, what he can do, etc. I was at a conference. No, not a conference. A day in Wembley Stadium some years back. And the speaker, who you would all know, by, at least most of you would know by name, so I'm not going to mention him. And it was about revival and this huge revival that was coming. And when that was said, his predictions were made and special words were given about the fact that there was church, the revival coming and the churches would not be, not, there would not be enough churches in this country to contain the blessing by the end of the year. Well, it's many years since then. It hasn't yet happened. Not that God can't do that, that we shouldn't pray for it. Of course we pray for that sort of thing to happen. But we don't follow sensation. And we must be careful about it. All of these things are an attempt by the devil to manipulate. So be on your guard. One thing you notice as we finish is this. Jesus didn't argue with Satan. Did you notice that? He just <coughs> quoted the scripture and submitted to it. He didn't argue with him. One of the temptations was to, if God has said this, why don't you do that? In other words, to get Jesus to think about it, to rationalize these things. If God said that, if this and if that and if the other, 
to rationalize about it. Jesus didn't rationalize about it at all. He just quoted scripture and submitted to scripture. And I think that's helpful for us when we're dealing with our temptations and our pressures and our problems. We need to know what the scripture says. And even as Jesus is, quote scripture and submit to it. Not just saying things and then carry on as you were, but because you have said it, commit yourself to what the scripture says and be obedient to it. He submitted to the word of God as well as quoting it. New Testament says this, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. It doesn't say argue with the devil, but resist him. Quoting scripture, submitting to it. And in so doing, Jesus glorified his father and demonstrated his tremendous power over even Satan's direct temptations given to him. This was not the end, by the way, because it says when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. You may go through times of terrible testing and you come through and you rejoice and say, well, I'm glad that's behind me. Yes, you can rejoice, but be prepared for we all will face these things from time to time. And the next phase of the story goes on to speak about particular areas of pressure that Jesus faced as he goes to his hometown of Nazareth. Let's pray together. And at the end of our praying, just this brief prayer, we're going to pray together out loud the prayer that Jesus taught us, you know, the Lord's Prayer. It'll be on the screen. If you know it off by heart, that's fine. If you don't, it'll be on the screen. And we shall pray the Lord's Prayer together which asks that he will lead us not into temptation. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this tremendous passage showing us how Jesus overcame the temptations of the evil one. Help us to walk in holiness and joy and freedom and delight with you day by day. We want, Lord Jesus, to know what it is to submit to your word and know your blessing as a result. And we pray that as we seek to walk with you day by day, that we too will know how to triumph over the evils and the pressures that we face. We pray that you will glorify your Son in us and through us as we resist the devil and flee from him. So let's pray this prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done as it is in earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive them that sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory for ever and ever. Amen. Can to stand to sing one more song as we come to the end of our time of worship and praise and study together, and I've just forgotten the first line. First word is God. Oh, love of God. Thank you very much. Love of God revealed in wonder. We shall stand to sing. It's on the screen.